This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Today would have been Frank Sinatra's birthday. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it with uh, Bruce Charrett, who is uh, not only a veteran entertainment manager and publicist and actually was friends with Frank Sinatra, but something of, uh, I don't know, an authority on Frank Sinatra's legacy. We'll get into that in just a bit. I mean, speaking personally, I have been a Frank Sinatra fan my entire life. It was the soundtrack of my childhood. And still, if you visit us uh, at our house regularly, there's a pretty good chance. We listen to a variety of styles of music, but there's a pretty good chance you'll hear um, Frank Sinatra. But in my view, the thing that made Frank Sinatra so special is the fact that he was so special. I, I realize that sounds silly, but follow me here. So Frank Sinatra was incredible. As a musician, he helped usher in, and we talked about this a bit with Doug McIntyre when he was on the program and uh, talking about his book, Frank's Shadow. He helped usher in this new era of non-big band to crooners. And we'll get into the music aspect of that with Bruce Jarrett. But unlike so many other great entertainers, the area where I think Frank Sinatra really doesn't get his due is as an actor. The man was an absolutely brilliant actor. I mean, you watch From Here to Eternity, you watch The Manchurian Candidate, he's incredible. I mean, you could see why he was an Academy Award nominated actor, but he's such a good singer, and his songs have endured over the years that you really, I don't think he gets his just desserts in terms of an actor. And also, and look, this is why he's been satirized on uh, Saturday Night Live. This is why he's been, um, you know, a, a character so often. But he was a larger-than-life personality. He would marry and bed the most beautiful women in the world. He was friends with politicians. He was friends with gangsters. To me, even if Frank Sinatra had no talent as a singer, no talent as an actor, the man would have been just as interesting to study and to listen to because of the incredible life that he led and the incredible stories that he that he's read. You know... I've read a number of Frank Sinatra biographies over the years. I think the one that I, you know, the problem with all these Sinatra biographies is that they either, again, I'm not claiming to re have read every Frank Sinatra biography ever, but the ones that I have read, they all turn into basically polemics. They turn into propaganda pieces celebrating how great he was, how his charisma, and lionizing him and basically making a candidate for sainthood, or 
they focus on how controversial he was, all the crooks that he knew and everything else. I really don't think there's ever been a neutral, fact-based Frank Sinatra biography. I think the closest to it that I have read is a book uh, called The Way You Wear Your Hat. That is the closest to it that I have read. Uh, Frank Sinatra and, uh, I don't remember what the subtitle is, but uh, Frank Sinatra and The Lost Art of Living. And that's the book that really, I think, gives you the best sense of Frank Sinatra's personality and the um, the best sense of his style. I'll tell you, and I'm sorry I didn't pull the audio of this prior interview today. I'm just thinking about it. But one of my favorite interviews that I ever did, maybe we'll play a portion of it tomorrow, was with Gay Talese. Gay Talese wrote maybe the best entertainment article of all time called Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. And he wrote it for Esquire magazine in the uh, early 60s. Gay Talese is still alive. He's in his 90s, a brilliant writer, an incredible, incredible person. And I interviewed him about that piece. And what was so interesting about that article, and to this day, that's probably the greatest profile of an entertainer ever written. Uh, the thing that's so interesting to me about it, I mean, everything's about it. I, I, I recommend you pull it up if you're interested in Frank Sinatra or just interested in good journalism. The thing that's so interesting to me about it is he never interviewed Frank Sinatra for that piece. You'd never know it in reading it. So 40 years later, and when I was at NYU... That was, I was taking a, a, a course in entertainment reporting, and that course actually had as the prescribed text the the uh, Esquire magazine article, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. Forty years later or so, Gay Talese did an updated article for Esquire on the kind of behind the scenes of what went into that article, and that's even more interesting, if possible, than the original article was. That article, if I'm remembering correctly, was called Not Interviewing Frank Sinatra. And that was really well done. The book that probably slams him the most is the, the Kitty Kelly book. Uh, Kitty Kelly writes books that, slams, that slam everybody. So she wrote the unauthorized biography of Frank Sinatra. She wrote about uh, the royal family. She wrote about Nancy Reagan. And you know if Kitty Kelly is writing a book about you, it's not going to be positive. I mean, basically, it's just a hit piece. And, you know, she uses questionable sourcing. And uh, her books have been attacked by almost everybody that she's written about ever. But when you don't write nice things, I guess that comes with the territory. One of Frank Sinatra's last interviews was with Larry King. And we are going to um, chat with Bruce Charrett, who we had on when Larry King passed away. He was a friend of both Larry King and Frank Sinatra. Here is Frank Sinatra, I think this is back in 1988, talking about this Kitty Kelly book with Larry King. Listen to the, and this is a man who was, you know, just kind of towards the end of his public life. He did still live a while after this, but he didn't really make many more public appearances after this particular interview. This is what's been described as his final major interview, and it was with Larry King on CNN. Listen to how he describes his reaction. This is just a portion of it. You can He goes on for 15 minutes about it, but we only picked a minute or two. This is what he says on the subject of the Kitty Kelly book, that unauthorized Frank Sinatra biography. Was it a mistake to try to stop it, by the way? It would have been a mistake. I think so. I think... I think it caused more notoriety if you try to if you try to stop it. 
Did you agree to that? Yeah, that was a mistake I, you yeah. made, right? Yeah. We, well, we, we didn't try to stop it. What we wanted to do was to have something to say about it. You know, I don't remember now what my people were saying to her people because it's, that's a long time yeah. ago. But, but your, I, the whole reaction to this on your part is you think, are you sending that to books like Donald Regan's book about Nancy Regan and Nancy Reagan and yeah. Larry Speaks, these current ways? That's correct, yeah. I'm saying uh, that uh, those are the pimps and the whores. They're the ones who write the books about people uh, to whom, they, to, with whom they had a, a kind of a privy uh, association, and believed in them, and and, other, and they believed in the other guy, and suddenly uh, they're out making a buck because uh, they they they, they got a, a pigeon. Okay, what is Frank? Do you think our right to know? Do we have a right to know, as a people, uh, whether Nancy Reagan reads horoscopes? Is that our, our right to know? I don't, I don't want to know. I mean, it's the only way I can answer your question. I really don't, I don't want to know about a lot of people about a lot of things that they do. I really don't want to know. Uh, I think there's a, there's a, uh, uh, listen, we could talk all for the, for the next week about uh, how badly we feel when we, when, we, when we read things about people, but you can never, we're never going to stop it because no. it's going to go on and on. As Human nature. I love that interview. It's on the YouTube. You can check it out. All right. Going to get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Vivek Ramaswamy has done what they call in the media business the full naked gun. The naked gun scene is a little gross. I, I thought even for my purposes in the middle of the night. So I'm not going to replay the naked gun scene. I think I've played it before. But basically what happens is naked gun from the in the from the files of police squad um, squad. Uh, Leslie Nielsen is playing Frank Drebin and he's giving a press briefing on the Queen of England's forthcoming visit to uh, California. And he's got all these microphones on. And then he leaves his microphones on while he goes to the restroom. And you hear kind of a very graphic, auditory Leslie Nielsen going to the bathroom. That's the premise of the film. It's funny. And it was especially fun back 35 years ago because it was still relatively new. It hadn't been done 900 times before. Well, anyway, Vivek Ramaswamy, the Republican candidate for president, appeared to forget to turn off his microphone while relieving himself during an X Spaces live stream with uh, a controversial figures like Alex Jones and Andrew Tate. Elon Musk was a part of this as well. Here's a little bit of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's hot mic moment. Maybe this is his campaign's attempt to deliver the greatest transparency. I'm super pro-human, and I mean all humans. Uh, you know, humans in America, humans... And Somebody's Africa, got their thing open. And everywhere else. Their phone open in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Vivek. Vivek, that's that's your phone, Vivek. I'm not able to mute you. Vivek, right, <laughs> go ahead, Elon. Um, sorry about that. So, um, <laughs> well, I hope you feel better. I feel great. Thank you. <laughs> sorry about that, guys. So it's it, you know it, clearly he's urinating. You hear Alex Jones? I think that's Alex Jones saying to him, "Someone's got their phone on being." And then that one guy says, oh, yeah, that's Vivek. I mean, that's something. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Vivek. Vivek, that's, that's your phone, Vivek. I'm not able to mute you. Vivek. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, Elon. Um, sorry about that. So, um, 
<laughs> well, I hope you feel better. I feel great. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. I have said this a hundred times. I feel like I say this every day now. If your microphone is on, um, you, you you have to act, or if you're wearing a microphone, you have to act like the microphone's always on. Always. 800-848-9222. Uh, 800-848-9222. Jimmy's in Rockland. Hi, Jimmy. I'm sorry, I'm busy. Um, Are you urinating like Vivek Ramaswamy? <laughs> That's a good one. You do deserve a congratulations on an absolutely terrific interview. Everybody's going to be talking about it for a long time. And I just wanted to know what these people were thinking about the firestorm and the bees nest they stirred up because they're all guilty of something. And maybe you should have just let the guy ride out the stuff. You would have kept the one vote that you needed, except, the, you know, so that, that was all I had to say. Great for you. God bless you, and hope the holiday season is treating well. But what did they do by stirring up this nest? This man is going to speak. He's well, going to tell all. Yeah, it's I just silly. wonder who benefits from, uh, other than the you know the the party leaders who get to pick the new congressman. Who benefits, you know, from this? The taxpayers don't benefit. They have to pay for the cost of a new election. Santos was halfway out the door anyway. He wasn't running for re-election. And we've set this horribly dangerous precedent that we can throw people out of office without finding them guilty of anything. This is correct. And is it a feather in the cap if they don't get their man? So it could be a detriment. Right. The reputation. Right. Hey, Jimmy, thanks for the call. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Uh, Suzanne is in Washington Heights. Hi, Suzanne. Hiya, Frank. Happy Frank's birthday. Likewise. Um, I, um, I wanted to call because when you were talking about Frank Sinatra as an actor, I wonder if you know this already, but Frank Capra, the American film director who did um, It's a Wonderful Life mm-hmm. and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, he made one film with Sinatra called Hole in the Head. And he, in, his, in, in, in Capra's autobiography, he wrote that he thought Sinatra had the potential to be one of the greater, greatest actors of all time. In fact, he wanted to make a movie about the life of St. Paul and cast Sinatra in the leading role. You know, I'm looking at this film. I have, I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen it, but this not, this not only has Frank Sinatra in it, it has another one of my favorite actors, uh, Edward G. Robinson. This looks exactly. great. And uh, a song that I just love, High Hopes, it was introduced <laughs> right. in this. So I have to check this out. This looks great. Yeah. In fact, um, another thing, you, you bring up Edward G. Robinson. Capra says in his book that he, the, the big problem that he had working on that film was that Sinatra did his best work in his first take. And Robinson, coming from the stage, loved to rehearse and rehearse and mm. rehearse. And they drove, they drove each other crazy because Sinatra didn't want to rehearse and Robinson loved to rehearse. That's wild. I got to check this out now. Hey, thanks for bringing this to my attention, Suzanne. Appreciate it. You're welcome. 800-848-9222. Frederick is in Brooklyn. Hello, Frederick. Yes, Frank. uh, Good morning. I have a particular question. Going back a little to the um, um, Santos interview Mm -hmm. you had, I I noticed that you did um, ask him the question concerning... um, you know, um, concerning, um, you know, if he know, know, he knowing that, um, 
some things he, he, he did um, that he... he hey, uh, he, Frederick, uh, do, he, do me a favor. Send me an email. I, I don't want to not answer your question, uh, but it sounds like you may need a minute to collect your thoughts. And uh, there's a lot of people that want to comment, and I have Bruce Charrett uh, waiting in the wing. So I, I don't want to not answer your question or or read your comment. But if you can email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com, I'll be happy to read your comment on the air uh, coming up next hour. Or if you, you know want to try and collect your thoughts and maybe call back a little bit later or in the future, feel free to do so. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Marianne is in the Queens. Hi, Marianne. Good morning, Frank. Uh, yes. Um, it's about the Santos. Santos, right? He, If he run again and he were in my district, I would work for him 100%. And how come? Here, what, what, no don't the what about the lies? Do the lies bother you? Let me tell you, and this is what I was going. I have never heard someone uh, saying so correctly what's going on in Capitol Hill. So he might be a liar because he likes to get in that position. But the way that he voted, he actually voted for what the people that put him in that position. He did what they want him to do. Now, he actually has put in clear what's going on over there, a, a secret that we already know, but nobody has actually said so well as he has. We need people like him that tell the truth, even though he lies in other things. But who doesn't lie? We all uh, yeah. No. Uh, hey, thanks, Marianne. I, I appreciate it. I'll be honest. You know, I, I think George Santos strikes me as a very fun guy to go for drinks with uh, or out to dinner with, which is why I asked him if he would pick up the tab or let me know the next time he's picking up the tab at a restaurant. I would not vote for him. Uh, not only I think his voting record was um, way too conservative for my taste, but... I also, I think integrity matters, and I think honesty matters. And it's one thing to stretch the truth a little bit. It's one thing to exaggerate a little bit. I don't know of a politician that hasn't done that in any party, right? But to completely fabricate every aspect of your biography, that's that's really not okay, right? So I wouldn't vote for someone like that. However... I also don't think you should be rewarded because you're willing to uh, complain about all of your colleagues or all of your former colleagues. No, I mean, I'm not saying you should keep anything a secret, especially if you're seeing anything that's illegal. But uh, and I brought this up with him, so I don't want to repeat myself. But the fact that you would kind of try to out someone's sexuality because they voted against you on a pretty important thing. Honestly, I, I think that is reprehensible. And it's not the kind of person that I would vote for. Uh, but uh, I'm grateful that he came on the show. He's very in demand right now. So I hope he comes back. Smart guy. Interesting guy. Sense of humor. But he's not someone that I could ever vote for. 800-848-9222. Chris in the Catskills. Hi. Good morning, Frank. Great interview. You brought out your A-game, of course. Thank you. Uh, I got a great title for his book, How to Grift Votes and Win Elections. <laughs> that would be one. That, and I think I, from listening to him towards the end of your interview, I can decipher how to tell if George Santos is telling the truth. When he told you that the story was false about him picking up the bar tab and the restaurant tab at the bar that you had discussed with him, he did not pause. The 
He didn't take a breath. And the level at which he communicated those thoughts to you, it was it was impeccable public speaking skills. He didn't waver one bit. When you hear him and he's sort of crafting his tales, there's some pauses in there. He 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 stopped speaking for air. I I, I think I'm on to something there with uh <laughs> Interesting. Hey, I, you know, I'll have to go back and re-listen with your, you know, with your kind of decoder ear that uh, that uh, and see if that holds true. That's interesting, Chris. All right, we're gonna talk Sinatra with Bruce Charrett, the living legend himself. Straight ahead, the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Hey, jealous lover, you're acting so strange. Hey, jealous lover, what is making you change? Hey, jealous lover, how wrong can you be? I'm yours ever faithful, just be faithful to me. I am just as steady as that clock on the shelf. I almost don't want to talk over this song. It's such a wonderful song. This is obviously Hey Jealous Lover by Frank Sinatra. Uh, Half past the hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is one of my favorite Sinatra songs. And it's one that's very rarely played on the radio. It's from the Ring-A-Ding-Ding album, which is just a a great album uh, in in its entirety. Obviously, it's got the song Ring-A-Ding-Ding on there, but also the coffee song, a lot of other great songs. And uh, in looking at Frank Sinatra, there are a lot of scholars, there are a lot of experts that know about Frank Sinatra as a personality. They can tell you who he hung out with. They can tell you uh, where he went to school and who his parents were, where he lived at different points of his life, who he was married to at different points of his life. There are other people that can tell you what Frank Sinatra was like as an entertainer, but I am yet to meet anybody that can really do the job of capturing the essence of Frank Sinatra, not only as a public personality, but as a personality in person as well. That's why I'm very, very pleased we've persuaded Bruce Charrett to stay up late with us. He is a veteran producer, an entertainment manager, he's a philanthropist, and was a friend of Frank Sinatra's. Bruce, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio again. Thank you for having me. It's one of my great pleasures to uh, 
to spend the night with you like this. <laughs> well, you'll have to, uh, whatever you're, you're smoking, you'll have to give my wife some because I don't think she derives the same pleasure. But um, I let me, a lot, when I spoke with Tom Dreesen about Frank Sinatra a couple of months ago, he uh, un, you know, unprompted said, hey, you know, you got to be careful about all these guys that claim that they were friends with Frank Sinatra or knew Frank Sinatra because honestly, almost all of them are dead. Now, you're substantially younger than Sinatra would have been if he uh, still lived today. How did you get to know Frank Sinatra? And by the way, I agree with Tom completely because I hear all these stories and, you know, Danny Kay used to have a great line. He said, if everybody graduated from Jefferson High School with me, who claims they did, the graduating class would have had 200,000 people. <laughs> you know, so it, it, it's, it's getting more and more ridiculous as time goes on. I had kind of a curious young life. I'm 60 years old now, but in my 20s, I spent age 21 to 28 working for Alan King. And Alan and Sinatra were great friends, and it was a time in history when variety performers of that ilk all worked the same places. And a lot of that was Atlantic City and Las Vegas. And this sounds like a cliche, but they did socialize. They did hang out together. Alan was kind enough to allow me to hang around and through that, I developed relationships with his peers. Some of them were 30 years older than I was, 40 years older, 50 years older than I was. And for whatever reason, they found me tolerable at worst and adorable at best, I suppose. And uh, I got to know a lot of those people. And I have such great memories of hanging out in the lounge with Sammy Davis and, and Sinatra a lot and Frank's manager, Elliot Weissman became a great friend of mine and Elliot's still with us, thankfully living in Florida. And I still talk to Elliot all the time. So I was very, very lucky that somebody my age who loved that period and those people as much as I did got to spend time with them and get to know them. And then when I moved to LA and I kind of, my career grew and I ended up a television executive, but I took those relationships with me and I spent many evenings at Stephen Eady's house with Sinatra and um, what I, was he a close friend of mine? Certainly not. Did I get to know him reasonably well? I did. Did I get to witness him in private situations? Absolutely. And my overriding position, and I say this to everybody, I thought he was kind and smart and amazingly interesting, just as an observer. Mm. Uh, if there's and, anybody that uh, hasn't written a book that should, it, it's you because the life that oh, you've led. Oh, and, I'm serious and continue to lead. You're going to make me blush, it's, and I'm not worthy of writing a book. But I will tell you this, because I I do like to be prepared. So I said to myself, what story can I tell that I witnessed that nobody else could tell about? Sinatra that kind of gives the audience a little insight. And it's a story that I've repeated many times because it just floored me when he, when, when it happened and it took place in his dressing room in Atlantic city and he was getting dressed and there were people hovering around the dressing room and the television was on. And it was a retrospective of Dick Cavett. And he was doing a section about Groucho Marx and he was interviewing Groucho Marx and then Cavett was interviewed subsequently about the interviews and the interviewer of Cavett asked him about Marx. And he said to Cavett, what is it that you, that you remember about Groucho that was most surprising to you? 
And he said, in a private moment with Groucho, I asked him, if you were to describe yourself of all your talents, what is it that is at the core of who you are? And immediately Groucho responded, I'm a writer. And Cabot was stunned by that reaction. And Sinatra sort of listening to this out of the corner of his eye, as the people in the dressing room are. And I wish I, I could retell the story because everybody's dead and say, I asked Sinatra the question, but I didn't. Sometimes when I retell the story, I take credit for it, but it's not true. <laughs> Somebody else in the dressing room asked and they said, Mr. S, we're going to ask you the same question. What is it that you are? Give us the one word. And he thought for a minute and he thought for a minute. And then he gave us the most shocking answer. He said, that's easy. I'm a musician. And that floored me and I've never forgotten it. He didn't say an entertainer. He didn't say a singer. He didn't say a movie star. He said, I'm a musician. And if you think about that and you let that resonate for a minute, it totally lets you understand his approach to his work and his contribution and who he thought he was. And that was where his, he, he understood his artistry mm. laid. And I just love that story because it's, it's mine. I witnessed it. It's not a secondhand story. And I think it, it gives you such insight into him in a way that you don't, I've never read it anywhere else. Uh, you know, talking about Sinatra as a musician, obviously a lot of folks know that he got his start with uh, the uh, Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, but he, at the early part of his career especially, it really does seem like he was a, a part of a great transition from one era of music to another. As I alluded to um, with what Tom Dreesen said previously, almost everybody that's old enough to have known Frank Sinatra as a peer has died. Almost, we're getting to the point where almost everyone that's ever seen Frank Sinatra perform in person, except at the very end of his career, which was obviously a very different entertainer than the uh, kind of person that was singing 40 years before that, has died. If you were to tell folks what you view Frank Sinatra's legacy is, particularly his musical legacy, since you said that's how he identified itself, how would you characterize it? What is Sinatra's well, legacy? Well, first, I just want to uh, uh, qualify something that you said, because I am argumentative by nature. He really wasn't a transitional figure musically. He was a culmination figure. He was the pinnacle of the musical style that started in the 1910s and culminated in the 1950s with Frank Sinatra's body of work. And I was privy to a conversation with him, and I'll answer your question in a minute, but one thing makes me think of something else, where we were taught, he loathed rock, rock and roll music. You know, people can tell me he loved the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I can tell you he loathed rock and roll music. There was nothing about that he, that he liked. He thought it was infantile and ridiculous. But with that said, somebody at the table said to him, you are responsible for rock and roll music. And he got arched by that. And the thesis was the following, and I kind of agree with it, that what Sinatra did in the 50s by taking the great music that had been written for the 30, 40 years prior to him, 
with the great arrangers like Nelson Riddle and Billy May and Axel Stordahl and all those Gordon Jenkins, all the people that we know, and took that music and recorded it and performed it and executed it as brilliantly as it could possibly be done. There was nothing left for the next generation to do with that musical style. So all artists are, by definition, want to create something new. So they were compelled to go in a completely different direction, start from scratch and start a new art form. So he was not a transitional figure. He was the culmination of that, the greatest that ever that ever existed in that musical genre and that style. Now, when you ask me what his contribution was, besides the obvious, which people talk about, which is he was the best popular singer that ever lived. And there are technical reasons for that because he simply did everything better than everybody else. He had, he had perfect intonation and he had the best rhythm and he had the best time and he understood lyrics better than anybody else. And he was gifted with a, maybe not the best instrument, but a beautiful baritone, all that comes together to make him the best singer ever. But what people, I think a lot of people don't realize is his contribution besides that is the following. We talk a lot about the great American songbook and the idea of standards. I submit that none of that would exist without Frank Sinatra. And the reason for that is when he started making the concept albums in the 1950s, he went back to his youth and chose songs that he loved from the 20s and 30s that basically were deader than a doornail, songs that had been completely forgotten, songs like Swinging Down the Lane and uh, 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 I'm thinking of all the songs on the, on the, on the, on the albums that he made. It's late. Um, I get it. Believe me. But- uh, when Your Lover Has Gone, I'm picking the, the, the ones that are the less obvious ones. But even the even the what we now call the Gershwin standards and the Rogers and Hart standards, I Wish I Were in Love Again, these were songs that had been written 20, 30 years earlier. Nobody was recording them at that point. The, the recording industry, singers sang new material. Whether the singers that were recording in, at that period, whether it was Frankie Lane or Eddie Fisher or Johnny Ray, it was all about new songs. And it was Frank who mined the territory of all these great songs that were 20, 30 years old and reapproached them, reinvigorated them, found a new audience that was interested in them and made everybody realize that this is material to be cherished and loved and, and honored. And it was from that that all other singers started mining all these great songs that had been written during that great period. And out of that, that was the progenitor of what became the great American songbook. Without Frank's taste and courage to have said, no, I'm not only going to do new material. I'm going to go find these great songs and reapproach them with the musical taste and sophistication that we have reached in the 1950s to create this tome, this incredible body of work. And this all comes out of his mind. It all comes out of his incredible taste. And he, he is the, he is the, 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 the author of everything that we understand post that none of it would exist without him. That's his legacy.
The you know it's interesting how you uh, characterize Sinatra as the uh, the greatest vocalist who ha- has ever lived. There are a lot of other singers that are great and have their fans and have had hit records. Uh, people like uh, Johnny Mathis, uh, Dean Martin, certainly Bing Crosby. What separates a Sinatra from a Bing Crosby, for instance? Well, well, I mean, you can first of all, we all are certainly entitled. I like all those people. But I tr- the, the reason that Sinatra is the greatest is, as I tried to say in, a minute ago, he did everything better than almost everybody else. So I can give you an example. I, let's talk about if you like there are some people that only like guys that swing. Right. So, well, they love Bobby Darren and they love Buddy Greco. Well, it's hard to swing better than Bobby Darren or Buddy Greco, but Bobby Darren and Buddy Greco don't sing ballads like Frank Sinatra. They didn't. Mm. Ella Fitzgerald has perfect Mm. intonation and Ella Fitzgerald has perfect time. But you really don't believe Ella Fitzgerald when she sings because she sings like a musician. She pays no attention to her lyrics. Bing Crosby was 15 years older than Frank, and he's kind of the generation before and he didn't have the, 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 the approach, the musical approach that was that Frank had that sort of came after the Second World War. And Bing was sort of, although he was in the 1930s, he was it. But so Frank took that to another level. So you can say there are somebody swings as well as Frank or somebody may sing a ballad as well as Frank. We, I can list 10 people that were gifted with a better instrument technically than Frank, you know, uh, Victor by, by Frank's own admission, Vic Damone, Dick Haines, Steve Lawrence, these guys all probably had better instruments than Frank, but nobody did everything as well as Frank did everything. Uh, talking with and- Bruce, Bruce Charrett, uh, you can uh, learn more about him. Uh, just Google Bruce Charrett and uh, his website comes right, uh, right up. Uh, there, are, there are hyphens in there, so I don't want to uh, you know, spend too much time giving the web address, but uh, certainly an interesting character, interesting guy in his own right. Hey, Bruce, the, the thing that always gets talked about these days when it comes to Frank Sinatra is the Rat Pack era. Certainly there are great movies like uh, Ocean's Eleven and you have, um, you know, all sorts of albums that have been re-released both digitally and on CD now again on vinyl of the Rat Pack at the Sands and all sorts of things like that. There was even an HBO movie made about the Rat Pack and it just looks like such a a fun era of all these brilliant entertainers hanging out with one another every day, going out and then uh, entertaining all sorts of folks. Help us separate kind of the reality, the actual history of what happened from the myth of the Rat Pack. Well, you know, the Rat Pack has sort of become a metaphor for a moment in history. And I think that if you look at it historically, purely as a historian, there was a very short window in time in the early 1960s in the United States when the sexual revolution was starting to take hold in America, but the old culture still existed. So it's the period between when the the, the shackles of the sexual revolution were lifted in the very late 50s and before the Kennedy assassination, the Vietnam War, and and the, the total shift in the cultural revolution that took place before the Beatles. And when we look back on it, 
it's sort of the metaphors for that, I think, are like it's like the Rat Pack and James Bond and Playboy. And when you look at it, it just seems so cool. Everybody is having a good time. Everybody's a little drunk. Everybody's in a perfect tuxedo. It's certainly misogynist. I don't know how cool it is if you're a woman or if you're black or, you know, but if you're a white male, it certainly seems like the coolest time ever to have lived. And that may very well be true. So if you talk about the 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 moment in history and what the Rat Pack represents, I kind of get that. I certainly understand what it is. If you're asking me about what the Rat Pack actually was, it has very little to do with how it's remembered. The, the, the Rat Pack, first of all, Frank hated that term, and we, we all know the history of it. That was a term that was coined by Lauren Bacall for a social group that was in Hollywood with, with, with right, Humphrey Bogey Bogart and, and so sure. on and so forth. But what happened is the, the Sinatra was filming the Sands in La, it was filming at the Sands in Las Vegas. He was filming Ocean's Eleven in 1960, and Jakey Friedman, who was an owner of the Sands and was did all the publicity for the hotel, came said to Frank, "Why don't you all appear at the hotel at the same time? It'll be good promo for the movie and so on." So it so happened that Dean Frank and Sammy were all Sands acts anyway. So it worked out. So they were shooting during the day and the Sands, excuse me, the Sands promoted this and nobody cared about it quite to the degree when it was going on as they do in retrospect. But the thing that bothers me about it is I was like everybody else. When I was a kid, I would say, my God, that's the show I would have liked to have seen. And everybody that I spoke to without exception who was kind of a hip, cool guy or woman who lived through that period, who said, no, you didn't want to see those shows. Those were the, those were the corniest shows for squares. They were, they were, you, you take Dean Frank and Sammy because Peter Lawford was there because he had a famous Mm brother-in-law and Joey Bishop was there because he happened to be the comic that Frank was enamored of at that moment. But, Dean, Frank, and Sammy were so extraordinarily talented. And to see each of them on their own, totally different, but a, an amazing experience in a saloon. But seeing them together was, you, you got the minute of them alone, but seeing them together was a corny, frat boy, nonsensical 20 minutes. And here's the part of it that I think historically that I don't think anybody talks about. Um, the Rat Pack is 1960. Dean and Jerry broke up in 1956. Dean and Jerry was, by everybody that remembered them, the funniest saloon nightclub act that ever existed. What made them so funny was the absolute irreverence, anarchy, pandemonium that they brought to the room. And this was only four years before. And Dean was the funny bone of that, of the Rat Pack. And if you look at what they do, it's sort of a attempt to bring the Dean and Jerry anarchy back onto the stage. Mm. And, and if you even listen to the, the, the set pieces, the jokes that Dean does with Sammy, not the NAACP joke, obviously, but a lot of the other jokes, the jokes he does with Joey, those are right out of the Martin and Lewis act. But the difference is, is that the, the anarchy that was there for Martin and Lewis was Jerry. 
And without Jerry, it didn't, it never worked. So people that saw it in 1960, who were so aware of Martin and Lewis only four years earlier, kind of looked at it and scratched their heads and said, you know, why are they doing Dean and Jerry's nonsense? And, and that sort of lost to time, but you know, it's remembered for what it is. And, and I often think that there are things I kind of think it's some, in some ways it bothers me that those performances were recorded mm. because it would have been far better just to leave them to everybody's imagination. When you sort of hear them, you go, really? That's what they were doing? <laughs> uh, understood and uh, duly noted. Hey, uh, Bruce, I have to run, but I have to ask uh, you uh, the question that uh, I love to hear people's opinion on. If you had to pick one Sinatra album that you'd say is your favorite, which one is it and why is it your favorite? Well, I, I can't pick one. I have to pick two, if I if you'll sure. indulge okay. me, yeah. because they're so different. And they're both from the period I was talking about. They're both the capital period. And I mean, it's on, on the swing side, uh, Songs for Swingin' Lovers and a Swingin' Affair. It's almost one album. You know, they were released uh, a year apart or so. But I guess if I had to pick one, it would be the Swingin' Lovers album. And then it would either be uh, uh, Only the Lonely or We Small Hours of the Morning for, for an album of ballads, or as Sinatra used to say, songs to slit your throat by. <laughs> he wasn't a fan of performing ballads or listening to them? No, no, no. He, he certainly was a fan of performing ballads. and he, No, but he, I mean, songs to slit your throat by was, you know, there was, a, there was a very famous comedy writer named Harry Crane who invented the Honeymooners, wrote for Dean and Jerry, and he was one of Frank's great friends. Frank absolutely adored him. And and he sort of summed up Sinatra uh, singing ballads by saying, nobody in the world bleeds like Frank when he wow. sings. I love that. And and it's such a wonderful line because it's true. And I, again, I, I kind of people have written this about Frank, so it's not anything that's unique to me. But what he did was he shared openly for a man who was uh, in many ways very private and profoundly dignified in his demeanor. He was willing to share his emotions with his audience through the lyrics in a way that has never been equaled, I don't think, by any other wow. popular artist. Uh, Bruce, uh, I really appreciate the time. I know it's late for you, even on the West Coast. Thanks for doing this. My very great pleasure, and a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah to all your listeners, and Happy New Year. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you uh, when you're in New York again. Bruce Charrett, you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. at midnight with Frank Morano. Start spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it, New York, New 
Well, great news. A couple of minutes before the top of the hour here on the other side of midnight. I have I have completed our company. Actually, I don't think this is our company's requirement. I think it's the state or city that I live in, but it's um, you know, it's done through our company. I have completed our required sexual harassment training. It's not just sexual harassment. It's workplace harassment. I have completed the workplace harassment training. So for anyone here at the workplace that I end up harassing, I will not be able to use the excuse that I am untrained. I am now very trained. I know exactly what to do and what not to do. Why don't you just apologize? I do. I do apologize. Matt Blaze, did you complete the uh, workplace uh, harassment uh, training course? Not yet. I still have to uh, ah, get on. Ah, <laughs> very interesting. I, in my busy schedule, am able to take the time to learn how to not harass anyone, and you're still sitting around gallivanting just all hours, waiting for the next skirts to walk down the hallway for you to harass. I mean, come on. I mean, I kind of know how to behave already for the most well for the most part if i were a christian and tony i'd keep my distance from you christian did you finish your workplace uh, harassment training yes i did i see that see that we are responsible team members here and i'm currently i'm currently afraid of matt frank there you go deservedly so so there you have it. I also completed the cybersecurity training. So if I uh, download, uh, you know, a phishing scam, or if my computer gets hacked and that leads to ransomware bringing down the whole company, it will not be because I am untrained. I am fully trained on both. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Hey, those of you that are on, um, I have to break in forty five seconds, so I don't think it's fair to you to um, give you only 40 seconds to chat. So if you guys hang, uh, we'll get to you after the top of the hour. And uh, there's no more call, no more guests today, so it's just you and me for the... Uh, even Noam Laden is uh, off today, so it's just you and me for the remainder of the program. Plenty of opportunity to comment on whatever you see fit. I have some stories that I think you're going to enjoy, uh, some stories that I think will both tickle the imagination and stimulate the mind. We'll get into that. And a whole lot more. Meantime, in the words... uh, Oh, I got a word from uh, Tony. Tony completed his uh, workplace training harassment, too. There you go. The only person here that might harass someone is Matt Blaze. You've been warned, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Keep asking questions. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.